Welcome to the new year and welcome back to Law Radio. Good to speak to you, Kate. Kate, since Christmas there's been an enormous amount of media stories about people subjected to wrongful Centrelink claims for debts and this story seems to have gained a lot of momentum over the last uh, kind of the Christmas to New Year break I guess. I see you've been active on social media and various blog posts. What is this issue really about? Well, Melissa, the government has indicated that it is very motivated to collect what it claims is overpaid social security payments from Centrelink customers. And while this has always been the case, it was ramped up from the middle of 2016 when the government developed in-house, I believe, an algorithm, so a computer program that would match Centrelink customers' data with their tax records. And now, then look for disparities between the two sets of accounts and issue a debt exactly. notice if they were not quite matching up. That's exactly right. Now, representatives of Centrelink have indicated that it's not a debt notice that's sent out to to customers, but the reality is that it's a query about the disparity asking customers to confirm whether it's accurate and there are some reports that indicate that as soon as the customer says yes you're correct that is my tax record then a debt notice issues almost immediately from that point. So what's happening is that or the problem that's occurring is that the tax office data is generated quite differently that's an annual uh, mm. payment or an annual income and the Centrelink data is calculated on a fortnightly basis. And so there will inevitably be a difference between the two of them, which means mm. that people are receiving notices of potential liability where none necessarily exists. And some people, of course, don't receive the first notice because it comes through to an old address or an old email account or on some format that you know, it was from years ago and so it doesn't relate to where they currently are. So they miss the first inquiry and that the failure to answer that inquiry, I guess, turns into a problem for them as far as Centrelink is concerned. It, yes, it seems to be a snowballing effect. I mean, there's a number of problems with the, with the system, a number of, of points at which the system doesn't match. And even though ministers and members of the department have come out in the media and said, you know, the process is really fair and you can dispute it and there's all sorts of systems in place for people to challenge or to question or to clarify, uh, the reality seems to be that for so many people who've received these notices, those systems are breaking down fundamentally and there are so many people who need these processes because the initial estimates or allegations of an overpayment are so fundamentally flawed in the first place. So it's just falsity upon error, upon mistake, upon bad process that's resulting in high levels of distress within the community. I mean, it seems to me that this affects a really broad range of people. It can affect students who have been on student allowances. It can affect people who had rent assistance. It's not strictly... Uh, the category of people who we might call welfare recipients. It's actually any number of people who have used Centrelink to, to gain government payments. You know, that could be family benefit payment or anything. And 
also the people who are receiving these notices are people who have gone into employed work because it's the disparity between getting the, the government benefits and then moving in and in and out of work that creates this debt calculation issue. Yes, that's right. That's right. And I think it's the one of the problems with the system is the assumption then that anyone who has received these government payments is open to questioning even some years down the track. So I guess you can understand processes that might require an audit of people's affairs at the end of a given period, mm. certainly that's proximate to when they received the payment. But what's happening here is, is it, there seems to be no proximity between the receipt of the payment and the fact that you're going effectively to be audited some years down the track. One of the other issues that I've identified in some of the media reports is that Centrelink already has the evidence of your payments or whatever that were provided at the time you went on or off the benefits. And because there is such a long time lag now between these new notifications and when the payments were originally made, people no longer have the records to be able to back up their claims hmm. that they don't owe anything to Centrelink. So the government... Hey, I, don't, I don't get payslips from my employer. I guess you might not either. It's just a, a thing sitting in a dashboard somewhere in the employment system of the employer. If you're no longer with that employer, how can you access the dashboard that had your regular payment account? Well, this is part of the FERSI, I think. Uh, the government's talking about addressing its debt and deficit disaster or whatever the terminology mm. is. And what it's effectively doing is pushing the cost of the welfare payments back on to members of the public who have received these payments but also their former employers mm. in dredging up this data from sometimes years ago. So data that they did provide at the time. Data that I believe they will have provided at the time. So it's in terms of cost effectiveness of recovering these amounts, you've got a system which I guess is a relatively low or nominal cost issuing the, uh, the initial notice of potential mm. overpayment, but then you have a huge cost in terms of not just the recipient having to find their records but also getting former employers involved in the mm. search for records if they still exist and then having actual real people, employees at Centrelink having to go through these extensive reviews of people's records and affairs to ascertain that in fact it was what we might call a false positive mm. um, assessment at the outset. And so it seems to be considering technology is meant to save us from inefficiencies and this sort of thing, I think they've really got the wrong end of the stick. The technology is just opening up a huge gateway of inefficiency and cost that's really not enhancing the system at all, I would have thought. The other party that bears some of the cost, or the displaced costs, would be the community legal centres and welfare services, um, and particularly one that's been mentioned is Lifeline, who are all scrambling to deal with a lot of people who are distressed and upset about receiving what appears to be debt notices with fairly harsh consequences attached to non-compliance. And these civil society organisations and community legal centres are indeed the very organisations that were cut in their funding 
in the in this budget the budget that we're supposed to be kind of repairing with this magical kind of money that's going to be flowing back into the government from the welfare beneficiaries yeah i think this really highlights what i see to be one of the biggest issues with this centrelink fiasco or debacle or been described in harsher terms than that <laughs> in various media cataclysm that's one way of one one C word that's been used. But I think this is the fact that government is really powerful and government is now using that power against people in society who are amongst the most disempowered. Mm. In addition to that, as you've pointed out, the kinds of institutions we'd expect in a civil society that support those who are disempowered, such as community legal centres or even, heaven's sake, Lifeline, which have been cut to the bone or dismantled entirely, as is mm. the case, I understand, with Lifeline in the Northern Territory, mm. mean that government is really leaving citizens totally on their own at the mercy of the huge and immovable systems of government and I think that's a misuse of power. It's all very well for the Minister to come out and say you know these aren't debt notices they're just indications that you need to provide more information and people shouldn't be afraid because you know the usual mantra if you've done nothing wrong you have nothing to fear. That is not the case and that is not the discourse that has been adopted by government. There's been an indication at the end of last year by the uh, relevant minister, Alan Tudge, that people who've done wrong will go to jail. Mm. When you get a notice from government, government must understand that that is an exercise of power and that mm. is how it is experienced by people. And certainly so, experienced that way when your Centrelink benefits, if you're still receiving them, suddenly drop down or, or drop out because a system for requiring repayment cuts in immediately even while you're waiting to appeal or dispute the particular claim. So if you're on the margin anyway and then they cut back into it or a debt collector comes around to enforce against you, you really are on the edge. And I guess that's what's invoked the, the lifeline issue is that people are actually experiencing extreme stress in the face of overwhelming government assault. Yes, and it's not unusual in government processes. For example, if you owe a tax debt, if you have a tax debt assessed against you and you want to challenge that, it's not unusual to be required to pay that back before you're entitled to sort of challenge it. And that, that you know, that's a, a known situation in mm. terms of government processes. But some commentators have pointed out that there's quite a big difference between the taxation system and the social security system and it really lies in what you've just articulated which is that people who who are actually on the edge financially uh, and don't forget as you also pointed out they've been receiving these payments not just because they don't have a job but because they might have a disability or because they might be caring for someone with a disability or they might be a veteran so there's all sorts of reasons why people are receiving these amounts and they need this money to live and their lives have now been thrown totally upside down they've been mm. blindsided by this and that's why I think it's it's a fundamental abuse of government power to be engaging in these processes so how do we fix case? Noel, 
Uh, how do we fix it is, is a really good question, but before we get to that, I was thinking about this, this issue that we've discussed before, which is about digital literacy and understanding what big data means and, and what the use of artificial intelligence or computer technology or managing data through the use of algorithms and other computational, I guess, methodology, as opposed to having a human who sits there and compares this stack of paper with that stack of paper and goes, hang on, this doesn't make sense, or yes, I can see that that name of that company is actually the same company as this company here, so it's not two sets of accounts, it's one set of accounts. But if you use these processes without human judgment coming into it, then there's a very high degree of error likely to come into the process because the algorithm and the computer system doesn't make a judgment about what they're looking at. It's just a matching exercise. And if they don't match, it spits it out. So it does strike me as we're looking at it, something that you, I guess, have described before as data illiteracy or digital illiteracy. That is, we're, we're keen to make use of the facility that these things offer us, but we're not yet well versed at how to ameliorate their harder edges or use uh, it wisely. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And there's two observations I'd make about that. The first is that there's some debate about whether this high error rate is actually intentional. Mm. So there's two scenarios. One is that it's just a really poorly crafted algorithm that yeah, is... Yeah, what people described as glitches, that glitches, there's mistakes in that, it. That it's, made, that it's that's really badly designed and that's why it's made this huge mistake. Mm. But a lot of people seem to be saying, people who know about these sorts of things, mm. seem to be saying you would have to be a total idiot to write something that had such a high error rate. There are ways that you would be able to create a better algorithm than that mm -hmm. that would actually do that proper correlation, not in the way that it has that, mm. that it is transpiring. Now, this leads to the alternative interpretation of what's happening, which is it's intentional. So government right. actually wants to do a full audit of everything that's been paid to pretty much anyone over the past however many years. And, and it, it does that actually, by just spitting out thousands of notices that's and right. let the client, the customer or the receive, recipient of the notice to right. challenge it's, or address that. But that's, a, it's, as you say, yeah. a huge shift in responsibility. Huge shift in responsibility. It's saying, okay, if you've received government payment in the last 20 years or however long it is, you have to actually prove that you are entitled to that. And that's the purpose of, of what's happening. Now, this leads to my second point or my second observation, which is that the, the lack of IT literacy or data literacy or digital capabilities, whatever, has been observed in terms of government. And there was a scathing piece in The Guardian today of an interview with Paul Chetler, who was the government's digital transformation office person, a, for, a former government worker, who says mm. that there is a high level of this IT illiteracy, but that mm. it comes through in the whole culture of the place. There is a culture of blame so that people higher up the chain mm. don't want to know the bad news. They're just sort of fobbing off all of this, uh, all this stuff and they just want things dealt with. And so... So that's so, the emperor's new clothes. No one wants to tell the emperor that he's actually walking around ill-equipped. I guess so. And and he calls for a massive education campaign amongst public servants and senior bureaucrats and probably um, you know ministers and and parliamentarians as well mm. to become more data literate to under, understand what are the implications of these things. 
So, and I think that's really important. But I guess my analysis would go slightly further than that to identify yeah. that it's not just a question of understanding what the algorithm could do better or yeah. how you could make it improved, but it's a question of how governance itself as a system is obliged to treat the public. And this goes to establishing the boundaries of government power and mm. I think, you know, the first big ticket item in that regard probably if you wanted to go back is something like Magna Carta where <laughs> the constraints were put on the exercise of government power in a very mm. analogue sense and a very physical sense. <laughs> We've now got to the stage where the ubiquity of digital technologies and the use of big data and the promise of big data, and let's mm. be real, there is promise associated mm. with big data as well as risk, but government needs to be sufficiently capable in understanding the implications for this on the relationship between government and the governed. And that's the big thing that I think is missing in this sense. Well, if the government has indeed and we don't know yet if this is the case, but if they have indeed set in place to audit everybody and reverse kind of onus of proof back onto the recipient, then they've moved from being a government who acts on behalf of people, society, the citizen, into a government that's operating against its citizens. And that's a very powerful shift if that's what's happened. And I, I wonder whether government ministers actually see it that way or understand it in those terms. That's an interesting point. And you, I guess you'd have to ask whether the shift in that understanding of government and the exercise of power had occurred anyway. So if you've already got a government that sees itself as acting against the people, if you like, and then they go, oh my God, here's a big stash of data. We could use that to our new and nefarious ends or or whether whether it's just totally accidental and, and mm. whether they've just so focused on this debt situation and they're they've got their back against the wall and, and and they're just attempting this as another move and then it's incidental that um that they've shifted that whole balance of power thing. Hard to make a judgment call on that except given the spectacular errors of government that we've seen in the last six months. I'm feeling a little pessimistic. Well, I think for those of us, and you and I both lecture in universities, and I think the lesson for us is that we need to take a lot more care in how we educate those who pass through the gates <laughs> of universities, at mm -hmm. least, in terms of the meaning of digital technologies and big data, etc., and how we as professionals or educated people understand the implications and the consequences of this. And our other responsibility, I think, is to educate the public. And going back to what you said before, this is also a function of the institutions of civil society, which include universities, community legal centres, grassroots organisations, to really enhance the citizens' own understanding of the implications of digital technologies and how they have potential to affect their world and how they can take action to protect their interests. And, in a way, re, as I think, as, as you said, recalibrate the boundaries of power to be functional 
in, in a digital You've been future. listening to I think Law that's, Radio that's with me, Kate Galloway, now, in conversation really with Melissa Casting. Okay, if you like our podcast, you can find Enjoy us coffee, at Melissa. SoundCloud or on iTunes, or you can pop over and have a look on our blog at lawradio.net. Thanks for listening. See you next time.